Hey, welcome to the Apologetics Canada podcast. This is Steve. I am here with Andy. Good to be here. We have a very special guest here with us today. I've been looking really forward to talking to this person for a while now. We have on the line today, all the way from California, Dr. Richard Weikart. He is Emeritus Professor of History at California State University, Stanislaus. His primary field is modern European history, and he specializes in the history of modern Germany as well as European intellectual history. He is the author of From Darwin to Hitler, Evolutionary Ethics, Eugenics, and Racism in Germany, Hitler's Religion, The Twisted Beliefs That Drove the Third Reich, and a book that I recently read, The Death of Humanity and the Case for Life, as well as others. In fact, a lot of our discussion today will revolve around what Dr. Weikart wrote in The Death of Humanity, as well as From Darwin to Hitler. Andy has read that book. I have read The Death of Humanity, both fantastic works. Thanks for taking the time to come on our show, Dr. Weikart. It's a real pleasure to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, the first time that I learned of your existence, Dr. Weikart, was when you were featured in the documentary, Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. And I remember very specifically that scene where you and Ben Stein are sitting in Dachau, and Ben asks you whether Hitler thought what he was doing was wrong. And I remember you responding something to the effect of, not only did Hitler think that he wasn't doing anything wrong, but in fact, he thought what he was doing was very positive for humanity. That has left such an impression on me. And ever since your name and your face sort of got seared into my mind. And so it's a real pleasure to have you here. Before we continue, I just want to give you a chance to humanize yourself in the eyes, or I should say ears of our listeners. So could you tell us a little bit more about who is Richard Weikart? Well, the most important thing about me is that uh, when I was 16, back in the 1970s, I gave my heart to Jesus Christ and became a disciple of his. And so that's uh, that changed my life dramatically and has colored everything that I've done ever since that time. So my whole life now is about trying to love and honor him. Uh, so that's really the most important thing there. Mm-hmm. One of the things, uh, interestingly, that listeners wouldn't know is that in the past, I've been working largely about exposing secular philosophies and, and looking at how they've impacted things in the world. But I'm, I've now sort of shifted my research focus a little bit. I still have, I'm still working a little bit on some things about that, sort of tying up some loose ends. I'm actually working on a book, for example, on euthanasia and assisted suicide uh, right now, both the history and a critique of it. Uh, but I'm also sort of shifting my focus now to looking at the history of religious revivals, Christian revivals mm. uh, in the modern world. Uh, I was saved during the Jesus People movement in the 1970s. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I know something a, a little bit about what revival is, uh, having experienced it myself. And I'm very interested in the history of revivals. And now I'm doing, a, I'm specifically doing a work on the Christian, uh, excuse me, the awakening movement in Germany in the early 19th century. But I'm going to then look at other revivals too, probably after I uh, finish that book project. You co-produced a documentary on that topic, didn't you, Dr. Weikart, um, about revival, especially in the time of the Reformation. Is that correct? Yeah, I co-produced a documentary back in 2017 during the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation uh, called Reformation and Revivals. You can look, go to YouTube and, and you can look it up, put in my name and Reformation and Revivals, and you'll find it. And it looks at the 
Protestant Reformation, but then also the Pietist Revival, and then also the Awakening Movement, the one that I'm doing my research project mm, on. So it actually okay. looks at three different uh, episodes, and there's, it's divided into three sections, in fact. I think one other thing, too, just to highlight quickly about yourself that I thought was was interesting uh, from a, on a personal note is that, if I understand correctly, you have seven children? Yes, I have seven children. And, and what's, the, what's the age band there? Uh, the oldest one's in the young, uh, early 30s, uh, and my youngest is 13. Uh, so we're okay. the youngest one, we're, we're still homeschooling. That's quite a range. Um, I'm just curious, you are a historian. What got you into the field of history in the first place? Well, after I was converted uh, to Christ uh, in the middle 1970s, in 1974, uh, I began, of course, reading my Bible assiduously, and uh, of course, there's a lot of historical material there, and that sort of stimulated some interest in history, I think, uh, there. But one of the things that really got me into, especially into European history, was reading Francis Schaeffer's works uh, in the 1970s when I was an undergraduate at Texas Christian University. I read most of Schaefer's works and, uh, you know, how should we then live? And, I, and by the way, I should say, I don't agree with Schaefer's uh, historical analysis in every point. I agree with a good bit of it. And uh, I, I just got stimulated into thinking about how our culture has been impacted by these various philosophies that have been put forward uh, over mm. the past a few centuries. And I think on the whole, his analysis is pretty uh, amazing. Uh, again, even though in details, I may not agree with every point of it. But yeah, it was lar largely Francis Schaeffer's works that got me interested. I also did a read C.S. Lewis's works uh, pretty extensively as well. Mm. Uh, but Schaeffer's one really got me interested in history, I think, mostly. Speaking of C.S. Lewis, one of the reasons we reached out to you for an interview is because at Apologetics Canada, we're putting on an event where we will be going over C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man. And when I reached out to you in your reply, you mentioned your book, The Death of Humanity and the Case for Life. And you told me that you consider it in some ways to be an updated and expanded version of the abolition of men. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, the abolition of man is a very short work that uh, Lewis did, but very uh, interesting and provocative. Uh, and I think really on target of, of showing how the secular philosophies of his day, which he's talking about the 1930s, 1940s at that point, uh, were impacting children through the educational system and teaching them that there's no objective morality, that there's no objective values, and other kinds of, of issues like that. And my own passion uh, since graduate school, one of the passions has been to look at the way that intellectual history has impacted ethics. That's why I looked at evolutionary ethics in my book on From Darwin to Hitler, uh, and seeing how the uh, secular philosophies have contributed to an erosion of Judeo-Christian uh, morality uh, over these uh, past few centuries. Would you say, though, that it that it's more than just Judeo-Christian value, that it's it would be kind of more expansive and just morality in general? Sure. Yeah, it goes beyond that because, yeah, of course, there's obviously uh, other cultures uh, that have fixed, that consider that there are objective ethics and norms. Uh, so yeah, it's not just Judeo-Christian morality, but in the European context and the American context, it is primarily that. Right. Uh, of course, if you look in the Enlightenment uh, period, you know, you have deists like Immanuel Kant and Voltaire and Thomas Jefferson and others 
who still upheld objective morality because they believed there was a God who created it. But many people see that as sort of a halfway station between true Christianity and the more secularizing philosophies mm-hmm. that were going to undermine the whole notion that there is any kind of objective morality. One thing I find really interesting or I find is really important is to kind of look at the context, look at how ideas are led from other ideas. So with the abolition of men, obviously the cultural milieu that Lewis is responding to didn't just come out of a vacuum you alluded to some of the uh, Enlightenment thinkers and things like that. So could you set the stage then for our listeners, what led up to the kinds of secular philosophies that Lewis was responding to? So how did Enlightenment thinkers, for example, view human nature? Because I think that was really key in your work, The Death of Humanity. Yeah, I do see the Enlightenment as being a key turning point. And that's why I start with the Enlightenment in my book and look at the way that it began in a, in a big way to impact thinking about uh, morality. Now, the mainstream enlightenment, as I just indicated a few minutes ago, uh, the mainstream enlightenment still did believe in some kind of creator God. They were mainly deists uh, who thought that there was objective moral law that God had created. However, during the enlightenment, there was also a movement that is often referred to today by historians as the radical enlightenment. In fact, Jonathan Israel has written quite extensively on the radical enlightenment and has shown that they were largely uh, materialists or pantheists. A lot of them were uh, bought into Spinoza's pantheism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Israel has done a lot of work on that element of it. And these atheistic or pantheistic enlightenment thinkers and the radical enlightenment are the ones who really were undermining the notion of objective morality. And they saw and objecting and and also undermining the idea of uh, humanity having any special place in creation. So whereas Thomas Jefferson, a, a deist, would say that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with inalienable rights, people like Julien Delamatrie, who was part of the Radical Enlightenment, he was a materialist, wrote a book called Man the Machine in 1747. And in Man the Machine, he says man is just a machine. We're just, you know, we're just the product of whatever happened before us, you know, it's just all mechanistic, you know? So they took Newtonian mechanics and tried to apply it to humanity. Newton never did that. Of course, Newton Mm. was a a Christian and believed uh, in the human soul and studied the book of revelation and prophecy and such toward the end of his life a great deal. But people like Lemaitre wanted to apply this mechanistic view to humans as well and claim that humans are just a machine. And this was a common theme then with other enlightenment thinkers following Delamitri. Well, I found it interesting in my own readings that Descartes really sets the stage for this, you know, his desire to want to see a human as a machine in a way that he could seek to understand how that machine operates. But it seems that this leads into an embrace in the Enlightenment into atomism. Uh, I think of thinkers like Gassandi and Hobbes and others that really grab hold of this material with when we talk about materialism, are you meaning like an atomistic view of the universe that everything reduces to the physical? Yes. And in fact, uh, many of them actually were looking back to the Greek philosophers as well. You're talking about atomism. I mean, they were looking back to people like Epicurus uh, and Democritus and others, and they were mm-hmm. thinking that they, uh, the Enlightenment was also a time of, you know, 
trying to revive those kinds of atheistic ancient philosophies as well uh, yeah. there. Uh, you, you mentioned Descartes. Uh, Descartes actually, of course, was, was a dualist. And so he tried to save the human soul. But people coming after him, like Delamitri and others, basically got rid of that the dualism of Descartes and, and focused just on the machine side, so just the human, just the physical side of humanity. There is a passage in The Death of Humanity that I thought was particularly insightful because uh, as you're talking about the mechanistic view of human beings, you mentioned that viewing a human being like a machine denigrates human beings as less than machine because at least machines are made for a purpose. But in this sort of mechanistic view of humanity, we are just accidental byproducts of a mindless, purposeless universe. That's right. And yeah, many of these thinkers that I talk about, starting with Delamitri, but then on through the 19th century with many of the materialists too, yeah, they see humans as being a cosmic accident uh, with no purpose, no meaning. So the only meaning or purpose we have is whatever we give it to ourselves, which is really mean we're just living by fairy tales. We're just living by whatever we decide to concoct in our minds, mm -hmm. you know, as being our purpose or meaning. Now, one of the things that you talk about that comes from this, so actually in your book, you quote Daniel Dennett, who refers to the universal solvent that ultimately develops from this, where you have Darwinism in particular that he's referencing. But talk about what, what is this universal solvent? Like, how does it, how does this worldview set the stage to just dissolve all these things like what Steve's talking about here, purpose being one of them, but also morality being another, which actually Dennett references specifically ethics. How does that unfold? Yeah. Once you get rid of any kind of creator God, and once the universe then is just the product of random events that have taken place over eons of time, uh, then there doesn't seem to be any purpose or meaning to any of that. Again, it's random. Random means there's no purpose or meaning to uh, what took place. Uh, there. So once you get rid of any kind of God that created and could give meaning and purpose to the universe, uh, you're also eliminating then any kind of morality that God could have imposed upon uh, the creation. In fact, Darwin himself, when he, in Ascent of Man, where he starts detailing his views about human evolution, explains that morality is simply an evolved trait too. So it's just a product of this chance process that has taken place over eons of time as well. So morality itself is changing. And not only that, Darwin also argued in The Descent of Man that morality could differ from one species to another species, or even from one race within a species to another race within the species. So morality, there's no fixed point in which there of what morality even is. It's just an instinct uh, that humans have that maybe we use ra that rationally, we create codes with it or whatever, but it's based by basically upon instincts that have uh, evolved over time. So again, there is no meaning and purpose even to morality. When I read The Death of Humanity, one thing that came through very clearly is that all these materialist thinkers who, who saw humanity as just the aggregation of machines, basically, but they have to deal with this sort of cognitive dissonance because on the one hand, they repudiate any kind of objective morality, but they're constantly sort of putting forward their own values, progressive values as, you know, this is the way it should be or, or things like that. Could you comment a little bit more about that cognitive dissonance? 
Yeah, that's also, by the way, one of the interesting points that uh, C.S. Lewis raises in The Abolition of Man, because he talks about what he calls the debunking that the secularists do <clears throat> in his day. They debunk any kind of traditional morality, any kind of ideas that correspond to their own. But then uh, Lewis also goes on to say that they don't debunk themselves. <laughs> they don't debunk their own morality. Uh, and so they're pushing this kind of progressive morality uh, while they claim that there is no morality. And so that, that get, helps them get rid of traditional morality. But then on the other hand, they're very often trying to push very strongly a progressive morality. And I, one of the best examples of this, I think, in, the, in today's world is Jerry Coyne. Jerry Coyne is an emeritus professor of biology at University of Chicago, uh, a leading atheist. Coyne, uh, in his book, I think it's called Faith Versus, uh, it might be Faith Versus Science or Faith Versus Reason. I don't remember the exact title. Anyway, I, anyway in reading that book, uh, it's very interesting because he does, on the one hand, uh, say that morality has something that's evolved that is has no fixed traits to it. But then on the other hand, uh, he's pushing a, a progressive morality, he says we should, you know, pushes this progressive political views, and moral views, and, and essentially claims that these are, quote, the best views or whatever, which there's uh, is makes not no sense. And another person that I discuss in my book, uh, Julian Savalescu, mm. uh, who is a professor at Oxford University, a, pr a professor of ethics. He's also the editor of the Journal of Medical Ethics. Uh, Savalescu is one of the leading transhumanists around, and he has the same kind of problem. Uh, he continually uses words that imply that there's some kind of moral goal, that there's something that's better than something else morally, that we need to, uh, in fact, he says that we need to, when we're trying to transform humans, that we need to morally enhance humans. Yeah. Uh, but enhance implies that you're making something better. <laughs> and <laughs> if you don't have any fixed morality, then there's no better, there's no yardstick for better. There's this cognitive dissonance in a lot of people. And, you know, I find that, reassuring in some sense that they still are in touch with their humanity to some degree and they haven't totally dispensed with their uh, conscience or whatever. But on the other hand, uh, they need to bring it into uh, the way to bring it into harmony is to, mm -hmm. uh, to find in my view, to, to place their trust in Christ and realize mm -hmm. that he can explain all of this for them. Right. Now, let's bring it back around to the Enlightenment thinkers and their views of human beings as machines. Now, in your book, you note that this splits off into a couple of directions, both of which are deterministic, meaning we don't get to choose what it is that we do. On the one hand, you have people who believe that it is your body that determines what it is that you do. It's your body that pulls the strings, so to speak. And then on the other hand, you have a group of people who say, no, it's your upbringing, whatever uh, upbringing you had and what you do is environmentally determined it's your environmental upbringing environmental circumstances that pull the strings so then let's start with biological determinism then this idea that to put it in today's terms it's my genes that make me do x y and z yeah, well, first of all, uh, it's important to note that once you embrace a materialist worldview or even a positivist worldview, and by the way, positivism would be an agnostic with, with a, a, when I say agnostic here, I don't mean just someone who says, I don't know, but someone who says that it's in theory impossible to know whether there's a God or not. So whether you embrace atheism or agnosticism or some similar uh, ideology, 
basically you have to deny free will. You have to deny that humans have any kind of free will. And once you deny free will, then you're, you have to embrace some kind of determinism. Determinism means that, that human behavior is determined by some antecedent thing. Now, as you're suggesting, there are two different ways you can go with that. You can either go with biological determinism, that is that we're determined by our, our biology, our genes, or you can go with environmental determinism. Now, most people, of course, go with a combination of those. Just about everyone, in fact, goes with a combination of those. But some people emphasize one more than the other uh, to a large degree. And so people we call biological determinists would be those that emphasize the uh, biological makeup as creating who, what your behavior is. So this would be like the search for the homosexual gene or the alcoholic gene or something like that, you know, that your genes determine what you do. Mm-hmm. Environmental determinism would be your education upbringing determine uh, what you can do. And various thinkers over the 19th and 20th century have taken these uh, approaches to uh, human behavior and have tried to explain humans as primarily biologically determined or primarily environmentally determined. Hi, listeners. Hope that you're enjoying the AC podcast. This is Andy Steiger. Our interview today with Dr. Weikart is a part of our literary expedition. Currently, we are reading and discussing C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man. We want to invite you to read the book and to join Steve and myself to discuss it. Given the interest in this topic, our meeting this Sunday is full, but we have rescheduled another session on February 21st. That one is almost full. If you want to join us, go to apologeticscanada.com and register today. And now, back to our interview with Dr. Richard Weichardt. Now, one question that I've been looking forward to asking you is how this plays out as we see... Now, I I think you can go all the way back, for example, to Aristotle and his argumentation, you know, for slavery, where you just have the strong and the weak, and, you know, the strong rule the weak sort of idea. But I want to fast forward, though, into the Victorian era, where you have this idea of nobility and your birth and your... Your, you know, your status in society is really what defines you and how significant, you know, it was, as we move from that era into a Darwinian, like a scientific approach to that worldview that gets ultimately coined as eugenics, that some people are more well-born than other people. In your research, how, how closely do you link this idea of moving from a Victorian worldview into this Darwinian worldview where, where these two, the biological and the social, seem to collide. Interestingly, I think Darwin was conflicted over this very issue himself, because as a good Victorian uh, who had grown up in the context of most of his society embracing Christianity, at least of some sort or other, Darwin believed that love your neighbor as yourself was a high and noble ideal and goal, and he thought that our... Uh, biological instincts actually tended in that direction. Uh, And so when he wrote in The Descent of Man, also in his autobiography, his ruminations about morality, he seems to assume that humans are going to love one another, that basically that's where our instincts aim us. Uh, On the other hand, of course, his theory is that the strong destroy the weak or the fit destroy the unfit, those that are not fit for their environments. And in The Descent of Man, he makes very clear that this can 
take various forms, which can include not it doesn't only include this, but it does include warfare. It does include enslavement. It does include other kinds of harsh and horrible things. And it includes genocide, in fact. In fact, Darwin actually uh, justifies genocide, essentially, in The Descent of Man by claiming that by annihilating the inferior races, and Darwin does consider certain races inferior to others. He considers the Europeans the most superior, and that's why he thinks they're going out colonizing the world. Uh, he justifies imperialism and even genocide because he thinks it's going to improve the human species ultimately. Just to clarify one thing here, or just to kind of press in on this a little bit more, how much do you think that moving from the, the that Victorian worldview into this Darwinian worldview, if you will, how much do you think that Darwinism was embraced because it fits so nice? It gave scientific justification to a class society. Because I can't help but think that people like Francis Galton that just put those pieces naturally together with regards to eugenics and is one of the reasons why he advocated in the UK for arranged marriages. And, you know, he advocated for a number of things that ultimately didn't take in the UK, but they do, you know, take in places like the United States, Canada, and ultimately in Nazi Germany. Yeah, well, I think the, the in the transition that you're trying to describe here, uh, there's a couple things going on. And one is that you're right. I think that Darwinism is justifying a lot of things that are already going on. In fact, when you think about racism, Darwinism didn't create racism, but it justified racism that already existed. <clears throat> and it provided a scientific rationale for it, which made racism all the more virulent. It actually and then promotes racism in the next generation. So young people growing up with this Darwinian mindset in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, they're being taught that this is what science teaches us, that, you know, races are unequal. And uh, and by the way, that th those very ideas are still being rehashed, by the way, today by white nationalists. If you look at white nationalist websites, I actually uh, wrote a book uh, that I'm trying to get published right now called Darwinian Racism. And one of the chapters is on white nationalism. The white nationalist websites today, and I looked at a whole lot of them, uh, are peddling Darwinism and some of the exact same ideas that were out in the early 20th century that I talk about in my book, From Darwin to Hitler, mm -hmm. that I talk about in Hitler's ethic and that were circulating during the Nazi period. So uh, there's a lot of uh, strange connections. Now, one area that I want to discuss, I think is actually quite important and has been lost is, you know, because this is one thing that my time in academia and academics and my, my time reading primary sources that I think is so important is how over time history can become one-sided or blind to a, a fuller picture. And that has definitely been the case for my view as I've studied more about Darwinian evolution. And I'm curious if you would agree with this, which reading your book, I, I think that you would, but we'll see. And that is that people in the past, you know, in the early 20th century, when they would have thought of evolution they would have had a much more moral understanding or impetus against Darwinism than I think necessarily exists today in that they would have seen those two as tied more closely than often it is today. And I, again, going back to this idea of Darwinism and eugenics being intimately connected, and I can't help but wonder historically if we've lost sight of a lot of the early arguments against evolution having much more of a moral component to it than we see today. 
Yeah, there were, in fact. Yeah, and in, in the studies I've done on evolutionary ethics, yes, there were a lot of people who were objecting to Darwinism on moral grounds, who were arguing that ethically there are huge problems with this. In fact, William Jennings Bryan, the famous candidate for president who then uh, was part of the Scopes trial uh, relating to uh, the teaching of Darwinism in uh, Tennessee, his main objection to Darwinism was moral. It was He was a pacifist. And Brian was objecting to Darwinism because he saw it as having led to World War I. There were a lot of writers in the period right at World War I who claimed that the Germans launched World War I because of their philosophies that they had imbibed, one of which was social Darwinism, one of which another one was, by the way, was Nietzsche, which was blamed very prominently as well uh, for World War I. And I talk about that some of the death of humanity too, about Nietzsche's connections with World mm -hmm. War I and such. <clears throat> uh, but Darwinism, social Darwinism was a driving force in convincing some uh, leading generals, for instance, in the uh, Austrian army, one of the leading generals had bought into the social Darwinist mentality that war is inevitable. And so you just need to fight it whenever it's most propitious for your uh, side to fight it. It's something that's part of the Darwinian struggle for existence. You know, it's part of nature. You can't get around it. Mm -hmm. uh, There's also was Friedrich Bernhardi, a, a German general, retired general who had written some books called Germany in the Next War, who'd been promoting these kind of social Darwinist ideas. So there it was a pretty prominent uh, idea. So there was moral opposition to Darwinism at that time by Brian and others who saw it as being having led to World War I, in fact. One of the themes that I wanted to touch on, and I think this connects pretty well with uh, what C.S. Lewis wrote in The Abolition of Men, was this idea of this secular utopia. So when you have things like biological determinism, you know, you are driven by your genes, or environmental determinism, it's your upbringing that drives you, they come to coalesce in the sort of the utopian vision of the future, like the secular utopia. So authors like H.G. Wells, Ayn Rand, like as they kind of envisioned the future. So could you tell our listeners a bit more about how did these materialist thinkers conceive of a secular utopia uh, during this era? And what are some common threads that run through all of them? Well, there's actually two different ways to answer your question. One is to think about the literary utopias that have been put forward or, or dystopias. In fact, it's both utopias and dystopias that have been put forward in the past couple of centuries, uh, starting in my book, Death of Humanity. I start off my chapter dealing with that, with uh, talking about Frankenstein, Shel Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein, which was a warning about science run amok without any considerations of morality uh, and such. But then there's also a whole series of other literary uh, utopias and others who, who see a, a future in which humanity is living in bliss and happiness because they've created the right environmental conditions. There's your environmental determinism uh, so that humans can flourish and, and be happy. And they blame all of the ills and evils of society on bad upbringing, bad education, and such. So if we can just change those things, we can bring about a utopia. There's also a, another, uh, there's political attempts, though, at utopia, too, that we've seen in the 20th century. And the two most outstanding of those, of course, are Nazism on the biological determinist side and communism on the environmental determinist side. So the Nazis were primarily biological determinists, believing that race determines everything, mm. uh, so that you need to try to build the most robust biological race, that if you're of the Jewish race, you have these particular characteristics, which were various immoral traits. If you're a German, you have these basic uh, moral traits. 
about your behavior. And so uh, the Germans thought that the Aryan or Nordic race, and they use those terms interchangeably, uh, were the most advanced intellectually, the most advanced morally. And so anything that benefited them was moral and would help improve the human race and bring about some utopia in the future. The communists, on the other hand, uh, were environmental determinists. They thought if you just change the economy, that particular part of the environment, uh, that you can radically transform humanity. And, and the greatest, I think, counter to that is Alexander Solzhenitsyn's work. If you read Alexander Solzhenitsyn's writings, such as One Day in the Life of Ivan Nesovich, it's a powerful critique of the way that the Soviet Union has tried to uh, remodel humans and transform humanity uh, by their uh, camps. Now, on that note, you know, you have C.S. Lewis writing this book, Abolition of Man. And of course, you mentioned in a blog post, well, I think we'll, we'll attach that to uh, this podcast on our, on our show notes. Uh, but you also tie Lewis's work, That Hideous Strength, as a part of this. Now, I've got a, a follow-up question to this, but maybe I'll just let you speak to Lewis's uh, other writings where he's wanting to get at this idea of you know, what you think is going to be a utopia is actually creating a dystopia. Yeah, that hideous strength is actually the best of Lewis's writings in that vein, talking about dystopia, uh, in that this uh, group of people in the future that he in terms N-I-C-E, nice, which are anything but nice, are doing these experiments. Uh, that's what the E stands for, experiments. Uh, they're doing these experiments on humanity. And in fact, they're using both biological and environmental methods. So they're trying to eliminate those that they identify as biologically inferior in various ways. In fact, they actually engineer wars to try to destroy people, but they also then try to do psychological manipulation of people. And so in that hideous strength, you see these people trying to control and manipulate humanity in various ways. And uh, at first, the protagonist, uh, Mark Studdick, uh, agrees with the project and gets brought into this project. But then as time goes on, he starts to wonder about it. And I'll, I'll leave it at that and not uh, give away the story. Uh, but, it's a powerful, but it's a powerful portrayal of the perils of both biological and social engineering. Now, one of the things that C.S. Lewis is getting at here that in the end, this is going to destroy us. And this is the idea of the abolition of man. I mean, it's the destruction of humanity. And a question that I've wanted to pose to you from your research is this, you know, when, when we talk about the death of God, everyone will point to Nietzsche and, you know, him as being this, you know, prophet of, okay, you know, we've embraced a worldview in which God is no longer a possibility sort of thing. Not that we've killed God, but that he's dead within the worldview. But as Lewis is bringing up here, that this is more than just the death of God. This is the death of humanity that we're dealing with that a lot of people don't fully, I think, appreciate that it's not just God that's died in this worldview. It's, it's us that's died in this worldview. And I'm wondering from your research, who would you say would be that prophet? Who, who was some of the, the first ringing that alarm bell saying, we die in this worldview? That's a great question. I don't know if I can give a good answer to it, but I, one thing I can say is that some people who have been followers of Nietzsche have sort of fleshed that out, that very idea that you just put forward, and Michel Foucault being one of the most prominent. Uh, Foucault has actually said that the death of God leads to the death of humanity, but he sees that as being something that's simply a truism, I suppose, although he doesn't believe in truth anyway, so I don't know. <laughs> that's kind of an ironic term to use, but Foucault, in fact, believes that all 
uh, statements that we make are ironic because there's no objective truth value to any of them as mm-hmm. such. So it's whatever you can convince people of that becomes the truth. So we're, we're back to, we're into this uh, brave new world in 1984 and, you know, and all these dystopias uh, and Foucault and others uh, see that as being, well, that's just the way it is, you know? So there's no such thing as fake news. It's just whatever people can convince other people of that's reality and truth. And in fact, he wrote some historical pieces that weren't really historically accurate, didn't he? And he knew this. He knew that this wasn't historically accurate because he wanted to create truth because he didn't believe in objective truth anyway. Is that a fair description of Michel Foucault? Oh, yeah, that's certainly. I mean, his book, History of Sexuality, yeah. I mean, he he basically uh, plays fast and loose with historical facts because he doesn't believe in facts. He believes that, you know, we create truth. And yeah. he, again, he's a follower of Nietzsche. He's, he also, by the way, was a very strong follower of the Marquis de Sade, very forthrightly. Mm-hmm. He had his students read Sade. This is the person we get the, the word sadism from because he was promoting violence against other people, domination, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. you know you know, whatever you desire, go for it, you know, even if it hurts other people. Mm-hmm. And Foucault was forthrightly promoting Saad's ideas. Mm-hmm. So um, we're, we're thinking of Lewis's work, the abolition of men in particular, as we, as of the date of this recording, that we have this little event that's happening in just a few days time where we will go through the abolition of men together with a couple dozen people. Now, I think his work is very much relevant today because the these dehumanizing philosophies that you mention, they're still in vogue, uh, very especially in the sort of the intelligentsia. Uh, so I'm thinking of people like Peter Singer, Alberto Jubilini, Francesca Minerva, who actually promote things like infanticide. They would euphemize it by saying afterbirth abortion. Uh, you mentioned Julian Savulescu earlier. There's, other, so there's you... others as well, Steve. I think of popular writers such as Harari that that thinks that when it comes to eugenics, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater and that you know, maybe we could do it over again without going down the Nazi route. Yeah. So could you comment a little bit more on how these dehumanizing philosophies are still living on today? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, if you look around at American academe, uh, the very things that I'm talking about, and in my book, Death of Humanity, I do talk about quite a number of uh, contemporary thinkers, uh, everyone from Jerry Coyne, whom I mentioned earlier, you know, Richard Dawkins, of course, Peter Singer, I discuss extensively, especially because in my book, I'm looking also not just at the way that these uh, philosophies have promoted uh, dehumanization, but I also look at how they've impacted bioethics, specifically abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia. So I look at sort of life and death issues. And so Singer, of course, being a bioethicist is a very prominent example of that uh, as well. So yeah, if you look at the the world of academe, and it's not just these people at the top echelons either, it's you know all the way down. In my chapter on Nietzsche and Foucault, these are very popular still among mm-hmm. uh, a lot of academics. Uh, so these ideas are still resonating. And I agree with you thoroughly that the abolition of man, C.S. Lewis's work, is still applicable to all these things because you know things haven't things have changed in certain ways, but there's still so many of these ideas that are still circulating, and mm-hmm. Lewis's critique is still valid. Uh, one. Uh, other thing I wanted to touch on is what I've noticed in your work is 
the tension between individual rights and some kind of a collective. So anytime you denied individual rights, that's when these massive killings start happening because it's one for all. So for the Nazis, it was the race. For the Marxists, it's the state. Uh, so could you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? What is going on here with this? Well, yeah, I think you're right that if we think about, again, certainly the two uh, most prominent political expressions of secular ideologies, the, the Nazis, the communists, they both did have a collectivist uh, mentality. However, there is also quite a dehumanizing philosophy in the individualist side as well. I mean, Ayn Rand, for example, whom you mentioned earlier, uh, was very individualist in her right. approach. And there are many people today who take a more individualistic kind of approach uh, but still have this atomistic view of humanity. I mean, in Anne Rand's case, she basically sees love and compassion as being negative traits, except in so much as love is an expression of your selfishness. <laughs> That's basically what she claims. You know, everything's for uh, selfishness. People can embrace either collectivism or individualism and still be embracing a dehumanizing kind of philosophy. And that's why in my book, Death of Humanity, I try to cover both those bases. You know, I have a chapter on Nietzsche and many of his followers, including Foucault, that does tend more to the individualist side. Uh, but then, of course, I also cover the communists and the, the Nazis and uh, many other collectivists uh, as well. So to me, it doesn't, collectivism versus individualism, one is not necessarily better than the other, I don't think. As Christians, we're supposed to be embracing, I think, notions of the individual as being created in the image of God and so having unique importance, but also loving one another as ourselves, which sort of brings a collective. So I think as Christians, we have sort of an element of individualism and collectivism, both uh, that are built in. And certainly the, the church is a collective right. organization uh, as well. So I think Christianity has both things and in a, in a way that uh, balances those to bring the greatest flourishing and thriving of humanity. It does bring in an interesting irony, doesn't it? That we, we think that social justice is kind of this new thing, but I mean, you go back into World War II and pre, and you see it alive and well, but it's interesting because it's like, it's a social justice, but what, what do you, what are you seeking especially in a worldview that is rapidly dissolving, you know, this universal acid, to go back to what Dennett calls it, the very foundation, you know, so you, you can't help but wonder what you're even fighting for uh, at the end of the day. Well, a lot of times I think it's more what they're fighting against. And I think this is mm -hmm. interesting. I bring in a quote in one of the later chapters of my, I think it's the last chapter of my book, where Aldous Huxley talks about his early life where he had rejected any notions of morality. And basically what he said was that the reason that he and many of his uh, peers in the 1920s had uh, rejected uh, any kind of fixed morality was because uh, they wanted uh, sexual liberation. That was one issue. The other, another issue was that he saw political and social inequities that he thought needed to be addressed. So there was two key mm -hmm. issues, but basically is what they're fighting against. Uh, and one thing I've noticed as I've studied intellectual history is that a lot of the big name people, philosophers and such over the past couple centuries are very anti-authority. And they thrive in opposing any kind of authority structure. And of course, God being the ultimate authority there, they oppose very often. Uh, but then they also oppose other authority structures, government, 
the family, you know, they kind of call it patriarchalism, you know, and so they, they, they want to attack anything that smacks of authority. But the irony, of course, in all of that is that very often they themselves want to be authoritarian. And so you end up with things like, you know, Vladimir Lenin, who's attacking authority. But then what happens once he comes in power? You know, he right. becomes, you know, even more uh, authoritarian than what he replaced. And I think this is one of the ironies that we have. And it's because their philosophies don't mirror reality. A question for you on your research. Did you do your doctoral research in Germany? Some of it, yeah, sure. Some of it, because I know you're fluent in German, like you interact quite a bit in German uh, scholarship, from what I understand. I'm wondering how German scholars have responded to your work, and if there's been negative pushback or embrace on that. I haven't received much pushback from Germany as from the United States, and I think part of that is because in the United States, a lot of the pushback in the United States has been about the Darwinism issue. Uh, and so I've got a lot of pushback over uh, especially the title of my book, From Darwin to Hitler, which a lot of people reacted to without even reading the book and trying to figure out what the book actually said. Uh, mm -hmm. So trying to connect Darwin with Hitler, I think, has been one of the biggest uh, issues of pushback that I've gotten there. But it's probably in part because uh, the German scholarly community isn't as uh, familiar with my work as the American community is. And not that they're not that they aren't totally. I mean, I've been to I went to a conference in Dresden, for example, where I presented about Hitler's ethic uh, and there was a conference volume published on it and everything. But I haven't received actually as much negative impact from Germany as I have from the United States. I, I am curious on this, that in my own research that I've done, there's there's a lot of negative reaction with regards to tying Darwinism with the Nazi party or Hitler or, but also, also even eugenics, because people are really fast to say, Hey, Darwin in, in his book, Origin of Species, he does, he doesn't bring up any of that eugenic stuff. You know, it's not until the descent of man and it's because of social, pre you, you get a lot of this revisionism that goes on trying to save Darwin. Have you experienced that? And what do you think, what is up with that? Oh, yeah, I think it's I think it's largely because they sort of idolize Darwin as Darwin himself. And so they don't want to uh, deal with it or, or they would just excuse it, just like in many other cases. So it's you know, it's just a case of here's someone that they honor and esteem and respect. And so they they don't want to see any of the negative implications of it. Although, again, to be fair, they will often point out that things like the Inquisitions and the Crusades and stuff happened within a Christian context. And so they will say, well, look what Christianity led to. And of course, you and I as Christians would say, well, no, that wasn't real Christianity. So they will sometimes say the same kind of thing. Well, that's not real Darwinism, you know, that, that did that. Well, I want to honor your time, Dr. Weikart. But uh, before we let you go, first of all, Thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy day to come and enlighten our listeners, enlighten uh, me and Andy, for sure. And, it's been uh, great talking to you. Yeah. And if uh, our listeners want to learn more about you and your work, where would you direct them to? Well, I don't have my own website, so <laughs> it's kind of scattered throughout the, the cyberspace. Uh, maybe going to YouTube and uh, looking up my name might be a good place to go. I've got a, there's a number of my lectures about my book From Darwin to Hitler, Death of Humanity, and others that have been posted there. My, re my documentary that a Andy had mentioned earlier, uh, Reformation and Revivals in Germany, is there. Uh, so maybe YouTube might be a good place to go and just put my, plug my name in and see what comes up. 
Well, there you have it, listeners. Go check out Dr. Weichart's books on Amazon or wherever it is that you purchase books and seek out his name on the interwebs, YouTube, Google, whatever it is. I know I've learned a lot from Dr. Weichart and I've really enjoyed my time doing that and I think you will too. Thank you for joining us on today's edition of the AC Podcast. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada. And we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, take care.